CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's been a very busy time in politics, so let's get right to the panel and start talking about the issues of the day. Uh, we're joined today by AJC editor Kevin Riley, the boss of the AJC. Thank you for being here, Kevin. Well, it's good to be here. You know, I'm filling in for Jim Galloway, and I, I just want you to know that uh, I'll do my best, but I'm no Jim Galloway. I, <laughs> we are glad to have you here, Mr. Riley. Uh, Mo Ivory is with us. Mo Ivory is a uh, professor professor of uh, law. She is uh, at Fair Fight Action. You have a formal role at Fair Fight Action that I, I should yeah. title, I mean? Yeah, I consult. I do okay. a little bit of everything. Um, the organization that Stacey Abrams uh, folks set up after the election last year. Yes. You were a candidate for Atlanta City Council. Yes. I mean, you're all over the place with <laughs> politics. I'm glad you're here, Mo. Thank, Thank you. you very Thank much you. for being here. Dr. Andra Gillespie is back with us. She, of course, a political science professor at Emory University. Andrew, we haven't seen you in a while. I'm really glad you're back. I can't wait to hear your take on a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Thanks for having me. And Martha Zoller is back with us as well. Martha has a popular daily radio show on WDUN out of Gainesville, where you talk about politics about as much as we do here. At about GPB. as much as you do. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start doing that right That's now. That's right. Um, all right, so uh, let's start with this. Kevin, yesterday, to no one's surprise, when the House voted on impeachment, the Georgia delegation split completely along partisan lines. All the Democrats in the delegation voted for it. All of the Republicans, with the exception of Jody Heiss, who sadly uh, missed the vote because his father died this weekend, and we do send our condolences to uh, Representative Heiss. Uh, so completely along partisan lines, just about the same way the rest of the country is gone, uh, the rest of the, the House went yesterday. Right, and I don't think anyone, any of us were really, really surprised by that. No. And then we also saw Representative Collins, you know, the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, continue his, uh, I guess we could call it zealous defense of the president and his attacks on the, uh, on the Democrats. So there's no sign at all that there's anything but partisan lines drawn on this impeachment process. All right, so as long as you mentioned uh, uh, Collins, why don't we uh, uh, listen to what Doug Collins had to say on, uh, uh, was it Fox News that he, uh, Fox News, this is Doug Collins, after the vote. The problem is, is they want you to appear that they've done something. In reality, all they did was solidify Adam Schiff's control. They kicked OGR, the, off, the Oversight Committee, out. They kicked Foreign Affairs out and tightened it down even further. For them to tell the American people that this is something good, then I challenge them, as I did on the floor today. Let's have an honest debate. If you want this to be a true inquiry, then treat it with the respect and the deference that it deserves, not the down the way that they're doing it now in the basement of the Capitol, simply letting people know what they want to know. All right, so Andra, um, what are we setting up here? F first, just in terms of where Georgia vote, what are vo Georgia voters going to make of all this? What impact do we imagine it could have on elections in the year ahead for, for offices in Georgia? Um, start with that. Well, 
there are a lot of questions there. So yes, there in, are. In terms of how Georgians will respond to this, I think they're going to respond to this the way the country responds to this. It's going to be polarized. Democrats are going to support the inquiry. Republicans are going to oppose the inquiry. I think the big kind of meta question here is how process has been weaponized here um, and how this is really evidence of the fact that Democrats and Republicans don't trust each other. So everybody sort of thinks that people are coming to the question of how to set up the rules for this inquiry with bad faith, um, and that is governing everything that's being done here. I also think that that helps to call into question motives. So, you know, in particular, when we think about people talking about rules and process, rules and process, rules and process, what do you do sort of when the rules and processes that are previously agreed upon don't work in your favor? Do all of a sudden you throw up your hands and say, dirty pool and I don't want to play, or do you go along with the process? So I think that there is this bigger normative question that we have to ask here, at least as far as how this is going to affect um, the 2020 election process. I mean, there are going to be some people who will say that, you know, the president may have done wrong, but maybe this isn't impeachable in terms of removing him from office. Perhaps this should be settled at the ballot box because we are so close to an election. There are going to be people who see no wrongdoing and are going to want to defend the president at all costs. Um, I think some of the bigger questions that have come up would be, um, you know, how is this going to impact um, the primary elections, especially with so many senators participating in that yeah. process. I think for the lower tiered senatorial candidates, it actually really doesn't matter. You should go back to D.C. and, and, and participate fully as a juror, right. uh, as a juror in, in this race. But I mean, there are there are a lot of interesting questions that get raised by this. So let's talk about one person who uh, is going to have to deal with this in her reelection campaign, uh, Martha, and that's uh, Lucy McBath. McBath did about what, a month ago or so? Uh, vote for a resolution that sort of started the impeachment process on its way. She hasn't been enthusiastic about talking about it uh, a lot. Um, but yesterday she cast her vote in favor of the uh, investigation, the formal process, which will lead to open hearings. Do we have any reason to think that Republicans are going to make genuine inroads against her as a result of this? Well, the challenge she's got is twofold. One, they might make inroads depending on how everything plays out. But two, your first reelection is always your most difficult one. Mm. That's the one where whether you are, you know, a Democrat that was elected in the last cycle or a Republican that was elected in the last cycle, it's the most difficult in that time. So she's going to have her most difficult reelection mm. in a swing district, I think could be fairly said is a swing district. So it's going to make it more difficult for her, I believe. And this vote itself was interesting because um, you know, typically process votes, and again, I agree with you that there's a lot of moving parts related to this. They're usually a lot broader than this one was. There's 36 votes that, that separate this yeah. one. Uh, two Democrats did vote with the Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there are, I think, something like 40 districts, and I could be a little wrong one way or the other, where people are up for their first reelection in districts that President Trump won in 2016. So that, you know, that's not a lot of votes that you have to shift when it comes right down to impeachment to be able to have this be a loss and not, not actually ultimately end up in impeachment. I don't think that's what's going to happen ultimately. I do think that we're going to see an impeachment at some point in time, but I don't think we'll see a removal in office. So I, well, you don't to think answer we'll... your question... Go ahead. A removal from office. Okay. But to answer your question, um, I think it's it, Lucy McBath is kind of on, you know, when the logs are across the river and you're walking across the river <laughs> on those logs, it can go either way. And I think that's where she is right now. I mean, I think there's no question, right? I mean, she doesn't want to run on this issue. I mean, no. she, right. when she was elected, right? That's How was she elected? That's exactly what I was going to ask yeah. you, Mo. Right. You know, we know that Lucy McBath was successful in her first campaign, or we, we think we know, yeah. uh, because she emphasized, I mean, she 
certainly guns are always going to be a part of her right. portfolio. But beyond that, pre-existing conditions became a major theme of her campaign, and we all believe that that had a lot to do with her getting elected in the first place. Now, facing re-election, how hard is it going to be for a McBath or some of these other swing district uh, Democrats, especially, to talk about anything but impeachment? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult, and I think that she's going to have to work really hard. I feel I feel for the position that she was in, um, yes, you know, on Thursday to um, have to uh, make a decision and, and stand where she has to stand, but I don't see how she could have done anything else. If she wants true Democrats to come back out and support her, if she wants leaning Republicans that voted for her to continue to support her, she has to be true to what she stood for. And so I think that she did the right thing, but I think she has, even before the, the vote, on Thursday. I think she has an uphill battle no matter what, and many do. So I think this is going to be an issue you're not going to be able to get around. You're going to have to address it. You're going to have to uh, hit. We have, like you said, so many unknowns, time frames. How are things going to change once, you know, it goes into full swing? So I think that she has to be very careful about the way she presents. Of course, presumably, Andrew, by the time we get to the general election next November, yeah. the impeachment process will be given our news cycles today, ancient history. Yes. yes, we hope so. And so I think in a swing district like this, I think the fundamentals are still the same. This is a, a, going to be a race of whoever gets the most people out to vote wins. And I think the question is, is impeachment a mobilizable issue for yeah. Democrats and or Republicans? So is this the type of thing that riles Republicans up so that they not only support President Trump at the top of the ticket, but also the down ballot races? Or is this something that will make Democrats mad such that you see record-breaking turnout that could help a Democratic candidate like Mm -hmm. Bill, do you really believe that timing? I'm interested in what everyone thinks about this. We keep hearing this. What finish the inquiry by Thanksgiving? Is that the thing people right, keep and then talking the trial about? In December. Now they're saying yeah. Christmas. Christmas. Well, I mean, uh, setting aside for a moment, right? They've got to put a budget deal together by mm -hmm. the end of November. I, I, you know, we talk about that another time. But when does Congress ever get anything done, even close to on time? I mean, I have to believe this could drag on mm -hmm. for a long time. And then you have to start asking yourself, who does that help or hurt? Martha? Well, I mean, I think that the, the big challenge is, and to your point where you said the people that believe in you are going to get out for you again because she's got to do what she promised to do. Well, that's true whether it's Lucy McBath or it's Donald Trump yeah. and everybody in between is if you can get the people out that you want to. In 2018, we had this election where Democrats turned out like a presidential election and Republicans turned out like a midterm. The question we don't know, and I love that you pose those questions, how will, will 2020 be? Will everybody turn out like a presidential? or is there a level for Democrats that's even higher than a presidential? We don't know that yet. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of votes on the table and it has nothing to do with suppression. It has to do with more turnout and how you're going to get people out. All right. So, Mo, um, as we as we analyze all of this, uh, I'm, I'm curious how this um, affects presidential candidates on the Democratic side. You've got six senators uh, running for president, mm -hmm. they will all compete. We presume we, we may see a dropout or two. It's possible, but not likely. Everybody's going to go to Iowa, the caucus in Iowa, which is what February third. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's regardless of what Kevin Riley thinks. I don't think there's much question that Democrats are determined, and McConnell will be too, in the Senate to get this this trial if there is one going in the Senate in January. 
If you've got six senators who can't campaign in Iowa, what does that do to their chances in that state? Uh, I think that's a real concern. Uh, I think they have to really, you know, it's hard to plan without knowing time frames. But I think uh, in, in sort of preliminary conversations inside of campaigns, they have to be considering so certain alternate uh, plans for whatever happens. On the, on the flip side, um, we have seen oftentimes that uh, when a senator is on the Judiciary Committee or, you know, we can think about Kamala Harris, you know, asking poignant questions and getting that spotlight moment and being able to take it mm. and ride it in the media. So there is also a unique opportunity for the ones who have a seat at the table um, to sort of try to differentiate themselves from each other by being extra special um, in the uh, Senate trial. But I do think it's a concern. It's a probably a good thing for Joe Biden. It's Vice President Biden. It's probably great for Mayor um, Buttigieg and others that, you know, don't have this situation. But again, I think there's uh, if I was on the side of a senator, I would be saying this may be a prime opportunity for you to stand out and make a big media day. Uh, Andrew, that's a good point, because we know Kamala Harris did herself a good amount. You did a lot of good for herself in some of the ways in which she questioned uh, 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 witnesses in some of the hearings she was involved in. Nevertheless, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, they're going to be happily campaigning in Iowa. Kamala Harris, who this past week cut down on her staff, mm -hmm. her expenses, mm -hmm. she's somebody who really needs to figure out a way to make a move before the caucuses. What do you think about how difficult this becomes? Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting role for the uh, senators to play because they're playing the role of jurors. Yes. Right. And so, I mean, and thinking of sort of like who's going to get the spotlight, it's going to be lots of members of the House in particular when these hearings kind of come up sort of through committee. The thing that I, you know, that I think I would be most concerned about is that if the candidate don't have an infrastructure already in place in Iowa and in New Hampshire in particular, unless they get a massive influx and fusion yeah. of cash by now, they're not going to have it. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, while you do want the, the candidate themselves to be present and out kind of, you know, pounding um, the pavement and, and, and shaking hands and doing all those other kinds of things, the truth is no one candidate, no one person is ever going to be able to touch every voter in Iowa and New Hampshire. So they are reliant upon their staff and their volunteers to be able to do it. If they don't have that infrastructure there now, then they can't do it. And yeah. so as long as somebody from that campaign is touching voters, they are probably sort of in as good a position as they were going to be in. The extra rally probably isn't going to do much for them. Okay, so so we already know that Pete Buttigieg has a significant ground game. Elizabeth Harris has a big ground game in Iowa particularly. I'm not quite clear on who else is really as well organized as those two are at this point. Sanders are you? pretty well organized. I think the biggest challenge is going to be for Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they haven't been able to get the money. They've had to make changes in their campaigns. And it, it, it pains me to say it because I think they add a lot to the race. But there's got to be some conversations, and it's a tough conversation to have. I've been a candidate. I know it's a tough time, conversation to have. When is it time to get out? Yeah. And that's, yeah. a, a, that's a hard one. Um, I, I got us away from the Georgia reaction to impeachment, and I don't want to completely get away from that because I want to be able to uh, share with uh, folks some of the reactions that we got. We got reactions, Kevin, from the Democrats yesterday. Uh, they went on the shows, they uh, tweeted out videos. So let's, uh, before we do anything else, come back to the Georgians in the delegation and uh, let's listen to Barry Loudermilk. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom Faust is saying he wants me to read the tweet that Jody Heiss put out first. And of course, again, Jody Heiss couldn't be uh, up there for the vote because of the loss of his father. But uh, here's what he said. 
Uh, House Democrats just voted to legitimize an unfair and corrupt witch hunt. Dems rebuffed every attempt to improve this sham resolution. Instead, they've given Adam Schiff, a known liar and leaker, free reign. Democratic integrity has gotten lost down a black hole. Can we play the uh, Barry Loudermilk clip, too? So uh, I want to get to that one, Kevin. And then I want to raise a question about uh, how Republicans are dealing with this process argument right now. Here comes Barry Loudermilk. The American people elected him as president. And to use the power of Congress, the power that we have here to undo an election, I don't know how the American people can trust the election process in the future or even this body in Congress. And I think that's the message that we're sending to them. Okay, here's why I wanted to go back to our Georgia members. Kevin, it, it strikes me that we ought to set some sort of we, those folks up on the Hill, we've got we ought to set some sort of boundaries in terms of how often you can use equivalencies from the past to try to deflect what's happening in the present. I mean, we already know there's a disingenuousness on both sides of this. We know that Democrats complained loudly about the way Republicans controlled the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998. And conversely, we see what Loudermilk, Jody Heiss, um, Doug Collins are doing. It's the same thing in reverse. At a certain point, don't we have to say we must take this in terms of what's happening right now. Well, I think that that's truth. I, I, I don't know um, where, I mean, in the end, we'll have to see where the public ends up, right? Because sure. the process argument has its limitations, but right now that's definitely the Republican line. And it really does become a question of what what facts are put out there for the public and how does the public absorb them? Because I know you don't like these references to the past, but we know that when the Nixon impeachment proceedings started, very few Americans supported yeah. impeaching him. And as the hearings went along, that number just grew at a great rate. So that public sentiment it will, will absolutely be important. Oh, no, no. I think that kind of look to the past is very significant. Uh, I'm talking, you know what I'm saying, Andre. These, it is disingenuous on both sides to refer to how you were mistreated in the last impeachment. Well, I, I don't even want to look back to, yeah. to, to, the, to the Clinton impeachment. You know, one of the problems arguments that I would say, and I will say that I'm, I'm somebody who is glad that there was a vote on, on procedure, mm -hmm. right? I, I just think in terms of keeping the moral high road, it's really important for, for, for Democrats to have some rules so that it doesn't look like they're being arbitrary um, or secretive. On the other hand, I think it's important to note that this particular investigation, not the Mueller investigation, but this particular investigation had to have a private phase at some point because there wasn't this report that came from a special prosecutor or a special counsel in the ways that it had in previous inquiries or even the Mueller investigation, which is separate from this. But I think when you want to have a process argument and then you have what we had happen last week where you have Republicans breaking protocol and showing up in the skiff with, with phones, right? That means that this isn't about process. That means that this is about some type of performance. And I think that like if we're going to be consistent, then both sides have to be consistent all the way and held to that particularly high standard. I think probably in terms of thinking about what Kevin is talking about is that right now we have a lot of evidence out there that actually looks pretty damning against the president of the United States. So from a process standpoint, 
the president has the right to be able to present evidence that would cast doubt on this evidence that's already out there in the um, in, in, in the world and to figure out sort of a way if there's anything exculpatory to be able to present that, right? So until the president produces that, we kind of have to go with the information that we have. And if they can't produce that, there's no process in the world that should be able to save him. And people need to be honest about if they're saving him without exculpatory evidence, if they're just doing it for partisan or personal reasons. Yeah. Uh, you want to say pick up on that? Uh, you know, I, it's it's reality show 101. This whole <laughs> entire thing. I mean, just with the executive producer, president of the United States, and I just think that when the evidence does come to the public sphere, like we're going to see it happen, I think that things will change, and this this argument on both sides will become very clear. And whatever does come out, whatever is brought forward, will make it very clear for the American public to decide what they think. The numbers on whether or not people thought the president should be impeached continue to rise. So we know that it's having an impact on the public and what people view of the president. So as what happened in Nixon, the trial came, the evidence was shown, and the American people felt differently. I think we'll see the same thing happen here. Martha, what are your listeners saying to you about this? You know, we pay attention to what people who are fans of this show say on Facebook Live, on Twitter, or whatever. Um, and so we have a fairly good idea of where they are on all this. You're in an interesting part of the state. What are your folks telling you up there? Well, I think the biggest challenge that we see is is who is controlling the information that's coming out that people are, are making making their decisions on. And so you had the, some testimony towards the end of last week where um, what was what was um, released from uh, Schiff and others was that there was this damning information relating to the president that 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 made it look even worse. And then what the Republican members that were in the meeting came out and said, no, what he said was, is he didn't hear, hear anything, what the witness said, he didn't hear anything that was illegal, and that he didn't think it rose to anything. And then on, on Thursday, uh, the president made a statement. He says, look, I'm on a phone call with a whole bunch of people. Do you think I'm really going to say something that, that I shouldn't have said? And so, so they're starting to push back, but there is this distrust, and it's to your point, which you, which you made in the beginning, there's this distrust, and I don't like to use the term mainstream media, but there's this distrust that people are not getting the whole story. And um, I think what you're going to see is people that have supported the president continue to support the president. And, and you know, as you know, polling is a difficult thing, okay? It's a very difficult thing. Um, we all have filters on our phones now that tell us if it's a, a spam risk or something like that where we can't pick it up. So polling is becoming harder, not easier, as far as getting a good mix of people. And and I think that what I'm hearing from my listeners is they don't trust what they're hearing and that they still support the president. Yeah, you know, Kevin, I, I've said this on the show in the past, but it's more true today than ever. I go back and forth on, on watching cable news. I, I watch uh, MSNBC and CNN, and then I go over and I watch Fox. And I'm especially interested in what Fox and Friends in the Morning are saying, since that's the president's favorite TV show. And as I've said on the show on any number of occasions, we're living in two entirely different universes. Mm -hmm. It is, I really invite people who are listeners, viewers of this show, try that sometime. It's staggering. Uh, how what Martha is saying is so true mm -hmm. about where you're getting your information, who you trust in the media and who you don't. Yeah, I, I do the same thing, Bill. I try to toggle between different outlets and see how they're positioning things. And one of the interesting things to me about what's going on right now, and I just keep trying to figure this out and probably can't be figured out, is if why did Speaker Pelosi decide now 
to take the vote. What is she thinking about what's going on, timing and everything else? And then watching Mitch McConnell sort of send that message to his his uh, caucus that we're going to have a trial and I'm going to prepare. Let's get prepared for a trial. You know, you'd really wonder mm. like then, if they figure they can make this work for them one way or the other, because mm. they're both pretty smart strategists. Mm -hmm. don't, well, don't and then that. you look, but then you look at, and I know you don't like to look back, but if you remember watching, <laughs> no, watching the trial, the Clinton trial, yeah. if you had just listened to what the senators said, and these were mostly Democratic senators because they were in the majority, you would have thought they were all going to vote to remove President Clinton from office. If you listen to the words they used, the, Joe Lieberman was one, many were others. Yeah, maybe, maybe then, not most the of them, but you're right. There were more Democrats who at first seemed so when to it be. So to taking the vote, <laughs> it's a very different yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps Republicans may turn around and decide that the president, once they see the evidence, uh, really should be impeached. I, I don't think impeachment is a question. Removal from, from office is the big Removal one. From because it is such a, that is, Something obviously you can't go back from, yeah. and he would continue to run for president. So I think and that's a be, you know. I think the question there is what's going to happen in the House. Yeah. So we saw this pretty strict party line vote. Um, and the two defectors defected for different reasons. One wanted to make sure that it was bipartisan. Um, and the other, uh, you know, it was really kind of hard to figure out exactly, you know, what yeah. he was saying. It almost seemed like he was more left of those who voted for right, impeachment. Right, right. I agree right? with you there. So, but when it comes time to actually issue the articles of impeachment, so after the open hearings in the House, what I think you're going to see is, I'm wondering, sort of based on the party line vote, is especially those retiring Republicans, whether or not some of them would potentially defect. And so they disagreed on process here, and so they can align with their party on this, but they can make the claim that they were sort of swayed by the preponderance of the evidence yeah. when it gets to a public hearing that they'll do yeah. something different. Right. And then that might be a signal of what we'll see in the Senate. I, I gotta get to a break, but, but, but Mo, before I do, let's pick up on Kevin's question. Why Pelosi finally, after saying for months, holding the line against uh, starting an impeachment inquiry, saying it has to be bipartisan, she finally gave in. I mean, I would argue that one of the reasons she gave in is she ran out of time to keep her caucus behind her on this, and she had the Ukraine phone call and apparently some other evidence that perhaps now the president had really crossed a line himself. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I would say that those are probably important things to consider. I think that she has a lot more than she had before. We don't know necessarily everything that was said in these closed hearings. I think when you think about, well, they're both smart strategists, you know, I, I would be the fly on the wall to wonder what they know, you know, yeah. I, because I feel like there, there were the, um, these closed hearings and then she immediately was putting this into play, which makes me feel she, she is sure she has a very strong smoking gun of some sort to move this forward. And I do think that her, um, her members are becoming anxious. I think her members are, let's move this. We have this primary coming up. We have this election. We need this to happen. It helps, you know, move forward their agenda for 2020. Right. So I think, I think it's all of those. Martha, give you the last word in this segment, because I'd argue something in addition to what we've just talked about or what Mo just said. I, I would not be surprised, you know, I'm speculating here. I can't speculating imagine. Speculating or hoping? No, no, <laughs> speculating that Nancy Pelosi wakes up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my gosh, did I do the right thing at the right moment? I, I really well, think there's got to be reasons to say I've unleashed something that I hope works to our benefit. I hope deals with a president who may have abused his authority, whatever. But what have I what have I unleashed? Well, her line she uses frequently is it's about patriotism, not politics. Mm -hmm. But I think yesterday was about politics. 
It was about dealing with the political issues that were facing her and keeping her caucus together. I think you hit the nail on the head, in my view, that there is a challenge in keeping her caucus together if she didn't go on and make this step, that they wanted to go on record. You know, there's this, there's this, Republicans think Democrats don't want to go on record with their vote, okay? And Democrats, you know, there's this perception that Democrats don't want to go on record, but of course they did, and they, yep. and they want to be on record for this. Right. But I have to say, I don't perceive Nancy Pelosi to be the type of woman that wakes up in the middle of the night going, like, <laughs> really? oh my gosh, what did uh, I do? Okay. I, ju I just don't at all. I think she's very sure what she does. I think she's I, I very strategic. And yeah. I think she does what she knows will be in the interest. And, and so far, it's been playing out fine. All right, I got to get to the break. But does she wake up in the middle of the night or not? Anna? No, I think yesterday was a bluff call. I mean, I think a part of that was a bluff call. Okay. So. I could have asked her when she visited us. If you'd only been <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You had her here. All right, we got to get to a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Thank you, guys. We're going to talk. That car of yours you no longer need. Give it a second life by donating it. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to support this station. Pickup is free. Here's how to get started. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Catching up on errands? Got your hands full doing chores or making a nice dinner? Well, we can't help you clean up the kitchen, but GPB can keep you company. And we can help keep you informed and entertained while you're at it. All you need is your voice. That's right, your smart speaker is also a radio. Go to gpb.org smart, where we'll walk you through how to set it up. We've got some state issues that we want to turn to uh, right now. Uh, this week, we learned from the Secretary of State's office that uh, they plan to take 313 people off the Georgia voter rolls. Thousand. Uh, 313,000 uh, 13, people. Right, right. Yes. Oh, it's a much bigger story. <laughs> <laughs> Jump on it. <laughs> 313,000 people off the po uh, poll, uh, the rolls. To make a point on that, we're talking now, uh, since there are about 7.4 million registered voters, that's 4% of the voters in the state. So here we go, deja vu all over again, Andra. Uh, this led to uh, cries of voter suppression by uh, Democrats and voting rights groups and Republicans saying, look, we've got to have honesty and integrity in our elections. So where do we stand on this from your point of view? Well, there are a couple of things at stake here. I mean, so part of this is relates back to federal law that does say you need to keep your voter rolls updated. Mm -hmm. So purging is sort of a normal part of that process. It's just a question of whether or not it's being done fairly and equitably. And so the Supreme Court gives the states, a lot, has given in recent nine years, the states a lot of latitude in terms of how they go about um, removing folks from the voter rolls. The problem is, is that in other states that have recently undergone voter purges, there is evidence that they're kicking people off of the polls who should not have been kicked off. And so it then becomes a question of how arbitrary is this and whether or not there is disparate impact uh, for uh, marginalized groups, groups that would have been protected under preclearance in particular with the Voting Rights Act, kind of over and above what we all are protected by with the Voting Rights Act. So the question is, is whether or not this is being used as a partisan tool to keep likely Democrats who are going to be disproportionately of color off the polls, whether or not they are 
going to be the ones who are going to have the hardest impact of these rules. All right, so Mo, two things about that, and I know at Fair Fight you're very concerned. This is one of the big issues sure. uh, for the organization. But okay, so uh, the Secretary of State released the list mm -hmm. of names, which which there were some Democrats were skeptical was going to happen, but in fact they did release the list. And here's what uh, the AJC Kevin reported: nearly two thirds of the cancellations were either because people had had election mail returned as undeliverable or they'd filed a change of requ address request with the Postal Service showing they'd moved to a different county or state. The remaining 120,000 people on the list had no contact with election officials since before 20, the 2012 presidential election. It, it strikes me that maybe you look at that second group, you're off the rolls because you didn't choose to vote, which seems to be should be my right. Mm -hmm. But the first group, if, if, you're not, if your mail's being returned, if you've already said you've moved, is it not appropriate to, have, to, to question whether you should re-up your registration? Uh, it's legitimate to have um, sort of a uh, mandated maintenance of the voter rolls, like you discussed, and that's very important. But it is very true in many states, like Ohio, for example. 20% of the people that were being purged from the rolls were not for those reasons. It was not because they had moved. It was not because they had died. It was just a tactic of voter suppression, which we know is a real thing. So um, it's important to note that the Secretary of State's office was not going to readily release that list. They were pressured to mm -hmm. release that list by many organizations including Fair Fight Action, ACLU, many organizations. And so they have now released it. So what will happen? Organizations that care about voter suppression, that want to make sure those 120,000 plus is accurate, is an accurate number. They'll check it over and then they'll begin to get in contact with these people to make sure that they are back, they can get on the voter Bill, rolls. Bill, but I they, don't want to drag us into the weeds here, but this is, I think, a good thing for us to know and for our audience to know. I mean, what are the rules? I mean, the simple rules, right? If mail is returned from my address, does the law require uh, that the Secretary of State take me off the rolls? In other words, when when is the Secretary of State simply following a law that he must follow, and when are they making judgments that people feel should be challenged? Because there's, I mean, there are some laws, right, that they have mm -hmm. to follow. Yes, well, the idea that somebody can be removed just because they haven't voted in a certain cycle since the 2012 cycle, for example, is not a law, that you can just take people off. When people have died, when people have moved, yes, if their records are not accurate. Even the, to a different the, county. I just moved to a different county. Yes, okay. it is. The onus is on you to change your registration to that county yeah. to make sure, like you said you did, you went on and you looked and you made sure that mm -hmm. you, you are registered, uh, you know, all the accurate things are there. But not the idea that just because you didn't vote since 2012 that you should then automatically be purged from the rolls. I think I think to step back from this for just a moment is the couple things we need to look at is, one, we're now the eighth largest state in the United States, mm -hmm. which means we have a lot more people moving in than moving out, but we have people moving in and moving out. So we need to make sure our processes are up to date as far as how we do that. As I understand it, and I think, I think the Secretary of State's office is trying to be more transparent, and I think they should be more transparent as to how they do this. And as I understand it, if you haven't voted in a certain number of cycles, then you get a letter. If you don't respond to that letter, then other things happen. But it's about a four-year process, and I think in this case, more than that, 2012 is more than that. It's a pretty long process before they actually but, move But Martha, off. it strikes me that Republicans, 
um, make some of their own trouble on this. So it, we should first point out the legislature did pass statutes in this past session that took care of some of the problems based right. on pressure from organizations That's like right. Fair Fight and other voting rights groups. Um, you get notification in a way you didn't before if you're taken off the road. But it, go, it, exact match. It's very difficult to justify the kind of terms that are involved in mm -hmm. having, not putting junior after your name, having a Hispanic surname that somebody has, has put down incorrectly on the voter registration. I mean, there's that, there's Brian Kemp, started the ball rolling by not recusing himself as the head of the elections when he was running for governor. Haven't Republicans caused some of the suspicion because of their own activities? Yes. Well, I think that there is, um, uh, look, there is a preconceived notion out there that Republicans don't want minorities to vote. And I just think there is no evidence to back that up. Mm. There is, there are, if you look at the turnout uh, that we have had in elections, we have seen people of color vote at record numbers throughout. So, uh, look, I think that the process needs to be clear and transparent and legal, and I think that we ought to have debates about it. And I think that I personally, you know, I remember the day my dad took me to register to vote when I was 18 years old. I got in my Sunday clothes, as we used to call it, and we went down to the voter registration office and we registered. And and so I think that it ought to be that kind of process for everybody. I, 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 want just, to get... I just have to interrupt for one second to say that the idea that Republicans um, uh, don't feel uh, that they want to put voter suppression tactics in place when large numbers of minorities vote, that is absolutely what they do. That it has been proven in Brian Kemp's own words in tweets that he sent out. A lot of minorities are being registered to vote. We've got to get out there and make sure that we do something about that. If you looked at this past election, you saw all types of problems with machines in districts that are heavily minority, in precincts that had large turnout from minority voters, and there were a lot of problems, a lot of injunctions to keep the polls open later because of problems. It's absolutely a fact that we have a voter suppression problem in Georgia and that the Republicans become very worried let me, when large get Andre in here. minorities let me get turn you out. And under because this is something that you pay a great deal of attention to. Well, there are a number of things. I mean, one, when we look nationally, Republicans have been caught on the record saying stuff like we're trying to, like, depress Democratic turnout, knowing right. that that's disproportionately minority. So people have, have said it. The other thing is in terms of thinking about voter suppression, particularly from a racial standpoint and not so much from a partisan standpoint, there is the history of tactics that have been used. And so the idea that um, activists like Mo and Fair Fight are kind of making this up out of, out of broad clock, like people have been trying to suppress the black vote since the 15th Amendment um, or since post-Reconstruction, to be more fair about that. And so there, I think, is a reason why people kind of get, like, the hair stands on the backs of people's necks mm. when people start to hear tactics that make it harder to vote versus making it easier to vote, and that these have typically been targeted towards the poor, towards people of color, towards the elderly. Um, and I think that there is the important distinction that there are sometimes attempts to suppress the vote that don't work. And so just because it didn't work, so for instance, voter ID laws. So I wrote a paper on, um, on on voter ID laws in the state of Georgia, and one of the things that we could see is that black turnout actually uh, goes up um, in terms of the percentage of registered voters after Georgia's voter ID laws go into effect. That doesn't mean that the intention behind instituting the strict voter ID laws that we got um, in the mid-aughts like, wasn't intended to de depress voter turnout. And so I think we need to separate um, intention and address that versus necessarily looking at the after. Martha, again, jump in. But again, to judge intention is trying to judge what people are thinking. And again, there's no way you can prove that. And so they, I, you know, I look at 
we have a very easy process for people to be able to register to vote and to vote, and that we don't put barriers in place in general. And Democrats, uh, I worked with Stacey Abrams very closely when she was the minority leader and I was in the media and making sure that her message got out on that. There are lots of Republicans out there that are positive about that. I, just like one Democrat saying something that's negative shouldn't shouldn't be all Democrats. Mm -hmm. If a couple of Republicans say things that you don't like, doesn't mean that all Republicans feel so that this, way. This we panel. need to get but, away but from that. Sure, but it's not also just measuring intent. We're measuring hard facts and action. We're not measuring intent. So when you say that, for example, you know, did Ryan Kemp not intend to recuse himself and step down in his own election? No, he didn't step down in I his own election. That. And yeah. those are actions. So okay. were there's a problem with voting machines at uh, uh, African-American precincts? Yes, there was. It wasn't the Tent to not have machines. There were problems with the machines. But again, so we're those not are all locally just, controlled. Uh, well, right. As we can see, so, Bill, in any discussion like this, you know, the temperature gets pretty high right. pretty fast, yeah. of course, and people are spirited and care about it. And, and I do think that, I mean, who doesn't, I mean, the American way is to get people to vote, to have as many people participate in our democracy as, as we possibly can. And I think the mistake that we make here, Andre, you really pointed it out, which is there are things that are done that have results that may or may not be intended. And then there are things that are said that, that then get generalized. I think that Everyone has got to make sure they're dealing with facts on these things. For example, were there precincts where voting machine, we, we didn't have an extension court, all that stuff? Well, the Secretary of State doesn't run that, that precinct. The county does. And well, that's, those that, are the kind yeah. of things we yeah. have to Sure, but out. resources to those counties come from the state election right. board. But, but and so when you think about, you know, it's not just as simple as, oh, it just so happened in People's Town there weren't extension courts. All right. Where all across Buckhead and Sandy Springs, they had every resource they needed. It's, it's really very easy well, to follow. But is the county is, is providing that that machinery, right? I mean, an extension cord that doesn't, you know, get to a precinct, you have to trace back to the county, don't you? Of course, you have to trace. Okay. It. You get. Okay. You're going to trace it back to the county, but there's a larger system that okay. is in play, I, especially if the person who's running is the secretary okay. of state. I, I just want to make a different point here, Kevin, because you are just right. This is an, a, d a debate that is going to find its way through the 2020 cycle sure. again. And certainly on November 20th, when Democratic presidential candidates arrive here to a debate, we know this is going to be a theme leading up to the debate by the national media and probably in the debate itself. Um, and here's what troubles me about this. There are, you know, uh, Martha Zoller sent out a link to a Washington Post fact check on a mm -hmm. statement that Pete Buttigieg made, which was that uh, Stacey Abrams would have won the, the governor's uh, office if the African-American vote hadn't been suppressed. And I really would recommend that everybody, can, Tom, maybe we can send out that link mm -hmm. to our listeners, our viewers, because I think it makes a point on both sides of this. And, and one of the things that's troubled me is that this became such a huge theme in 2018. The national media played this up in a big, big way. And we here in Georgia were kind of caught uh, in an odd place because we did see problems but we didn't see the apocalyptic vision that some of the national media seem to create about voter suppression. Uh, did did yeah, you? I, I will just tell you, I mean, I don't want to get into my long uh, diatribe about what the national media did in Georgia. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as at the newspaper, we devote a reporter, Mark Nisi, who covers yeah. voting issues full time, you know, and I can at any given moment. And I know you've had Mark on the show. You can ask Mark a question and he can explain pretty thoroughly right, what's going on. Sitting next to you. 
Rhonda Gillespie had a deep sigh when I said that. Why? I think that there's a lot at, at, at stake here. So in that particular article, and what they come down to is we're never going to be able to prove that. Right. Is that from an empirical standpoint, this is a that is a very difficult question to yeah. measure. So there are some things that we're never going to be able to know. We will not know how many people um, saw a line that was too long and then just decided not to bother because you can't rely on people recollecting that correctly. Um, so like those are the kinds of things that are always going to be unknown. But what we do know are optics. And and what we do know is the historical context. And yeah. so when people try to make claims about instituting certain practices and try to act like, oh, we couldn't have possibly thought or anticipated a potential disparate impact or that it looks like stuff that has happened before, yeah. you know, for the last hundred years, then that is where I, the problem is. And that's where we absolutely. need to find common ground. All right, absolutely. Perception as it, much right. as reality. I, got, I have yeah. got yeah. to get our final break this show out of the way. As I do, Mo, let me just say quickly that we are only going to hear more about this because we learned this morning in the AJC that Stacey Abrams has now signed a contract to develop something in Los Angeles that may be a made-for-TV movie, who knows what, that perhaps voter suppression will be the theme of. Yeah, she is dedicated to, um, <laughs> you know, solving this issue and working hard. There's a lawsuit going on right now, and we, you know, at, at Fair Fight want to do everything we can. And Stacey right. is a national figure, I perfect to address this issue on a national stage. Thank you. i got to get to a break. We'll be back. We're going to talk a little about the governor's uh, waivers for uh, health insurance. Millions of Americans are getting seven-year car loans. The monthly payments are lower, but they can cost thousands of dollars extra in interest. And some buyers wind up spending more than they should. I wonder that a lot. If the loan had to be five years, what car would I truly have driven off the lot that day? The rise of the seven-year car loan this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Moths seem to play the part of the ugly step-sibling for the more beautiful butterfly, but underneath their humble exterior, they're more valuable and fascinating than you think. I'm Ira Flato. This week on Science Friday, a journey through the wonderfully weird world of Lepidoptera. A lot more than just holes in your sweater. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Join us this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. Exciting news for us here at GPB Radio. Monday, if you watch us on Facebook Live, we're going to be in our brand new talk studio. So I hope you will uh, join us, get a chance to see this very modern facility starting at 2 o'clock on uh, Monday afternoon. Facebook Live, just go to the GPB news page and you'll see us there. All right, we've got get two uh, subjects into this very short last segment. <laughs> so quickly, uh, the governor, we saw two of the waivers. He's plans for health insurance that he's sending off to the feds, hoping to get approval on uh, expanding Medicaid isn't part of that yet. So one of them is, uh, Kevin, offering subsidies to people who buy on the exchanges. We don't even have time to get into that today, and it'll get us into the weeds in a big way. But we will discuss it in the weeks ahead on the show. But the other one that's really interesting, because it's a first-in-the-nation waiver opportunity for him, he wants to pull Georgia out of the federal exchange, get the money the feds uh, give to the state, some $6 billion 
dollars and start basically his own Georgia exchange. That's dramatic, and I suspect is going to get to be incredibly controversial. He did promise something bold, and so that's it. And, you know, we had Errol Hart on the show, who's our health care reporter at the AJC earlier this week, and I talked to her about it. Uh, before I came on the show, and she said it, it will be controversial because what will happen is private companies will have their place on that exchange. You'll be redirected and have to choose. And some of those operators are just outstanding in their way they can guide people through this process, and certainly others are less. Yeah, Martha, as it is right now, if you want to buy any exchange, you go to the federal website, health.gov, and you make your choices right there. It's all laid out for you. What Brian Kemp would propose is that when you go to health.gov, you'll be redirected to a state site of some sort that, among other things, may offer you a list of private insurers who can give you different plans that you can choose from. Um, and, and it just strikes me that's going to be well, really... Well, and in fairness, you know, I left the governor's office in June, yes. worked for the governor yes. um, until then, and uh, I think one of the... Ch and I'm on COBRA right now, so I'm one of those people <laughs> dealing with health insurance yeah. issues right now, okay? So um, I think one of the biggest challenges we're going to have is that many of the plans through the exchange weren't recognized. There are whole communities, like the, in the 14th and the 9th and the 7th District, most of the hospitals don't take any of the ACA plans. So, so what, I don't know if this is the answer, right? But one of the biggest challenges is that, that if you have a plan that no hospital will take, do you have a plan? And that's what a lot of Georgians throughout the state are dealing with. Georgia has the um, fifth highest rate of um, uninsured children, 217,000. Yeah. And it's going up. Yeah, we just learned that uh, yeah. the other day on our show. Yeah, it's 40th ranked for health of women and children. A $10 million cut from state agencies who run Medicaid. Um, there's been a cut to Morehouse School of Medicine Center for um, uh, maternal mortality. We have a huge maternal mortality um, problem in Georgia. Um, this is just a bad idea. Um, besides the idea of uh, starting a new website, that is redirected from the federal website. And, um, you know, we have a historic problem with uh, websites run by Brian Kemp in Georgia. Well, and, and the federal website, a terrible well, problem with that one, yeah. too. And personal information. So I just think that this is not a well-thought-out idea. I'm curious to hear what will um, more of it, but I think it's uh, it moves away from the much-needed thing, which is Medicaid expansion. Andrew, we should say that this is something President Trump has suggested to governors, mm -hmm. uh, Republican governors across the country, they do. Uh, Governor Kemp will be the first one who's really tried it. So, you know, what will be interesting from this? I have to say, I'm not surprised that some state took this particular step. And when we were having the fight about the ACA, um, I initially thought that there was going to have, be some type of tinkering with insurance. So the only thing that we haven't really talked about yet is state-to-state -state portability, which is something that I'm sure somebody else will test um, at some point. But let's just assume that this happens, right? The proof will be in the pudding. And so yeah. um, as much as I hate to do this, because I, I, I am a social scientist, I like experimentation and all of these kinds of things. And so we have to wait to see whether or not this works. And so some of the things that we can look at, people have done interesting work matching states that are comparably situated um, socioeconomically and looking at the only difference between them being, you know, who expanded Medicaid versus who didn't, what do health com outcomes look like in the state? So I think what will happen here is that if Georgia becomes the test case and this becomes a success and we see those outcomes improve, then we have to sit and sort of adjust what we think about mm -hmm. what those, you know, uh, what are the best ways to provide mm -hmm. health care for folks. But, I mean, unfortunately, you know, if this goes badly, then there will be a lot of people who will suffer for it. But that could be true for any type of policy. So sure. it's 
all part of sort of the policy imp implementation and feedback process. All right. I, I, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this, and each one of you is invited to come back at some point, <laughs> and we'll discuss it as Despite it moves Despite our forward. behavior today, we will. We'll <laughs> uh, Kevin Riley, uh, boy, talk about firing up the culture wars. Uh, yesterday, Representative Ginny Earhart, her husband was Earl, is Earl Earhart, he, she took his seat when he retired. Uh, she said that she's going to introduce legislation that will criminalize the act of a doctor who chooses to help a minor with gender transition. I guess my number one question is, how long do you think this will last before the speaker, David Ralston, slaps this down hard? What time is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this just yeah. talks, why yeah. would, a Repu would Republicans want to get into this fight in an election year or at any time? Right, and it does, you know, it does sound a little bit like a solution looking for a problem. Uh, and... It, and an attack on a certain group of people. I mean, I do think that's being perceived. But I've sort of learned the hard way working in the media. I think we'll find out that there is a group of people to whom this is very important. Here's what Ginny Earhart had to say about uh, this bill. Again, she hasn't introduced this legislation. She doesn't even have it formalized yet. We're talking about children that can't get a tattoo or smoke a cigar or a cigarette in the state of Georgia, but can be castrated and get steri sterilized. Andra? Well, I mean, I think it's important to know that not all transgender people choose to get castrated or sterilized, yes. as she puts it. Right. Um, but, um, you know, based on what, what I read, she was motivated to do this because there's a custody case yes. in Texas where two parents are arguing about whether or not their, their child uh, has gender dysphoria and whether or not they would uh, need this type of surgery. And so I think making public policy based on one case that's happening in a different state, just in general, is bad policy apart from the optics looking like your skin. Well, and you know, and this like, time of the year, too, is when you hear a lot of these proposals that come out, and they're never going to go anywhere, and I think this is one of those. Yeah. And the judge in that case ruled that both parents will continue to have a say-so over what happens to their child, and I think that as this um, uh, topic of gender identity and the and the things that people want to do around that medically is developing, as all things in our country do, and people are trying to figure out what it means and how it works in, in, in conjunction with the doctor, but that judge said that both parents will decide what is best for their child, and right now that's what should happen. The, parents should make those decisions. Yeah, I, I really can't imagine it getting very far. What's interesting about it to me, Mo, is here, here's an area, she's up in Powder Springs, here's an area that is, you know, purple, uh, that whole sure. community up there turning purple, and it seems to me this is the sort of thing that, that a suburban women might look at and wonder what the heck is going on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, when I first read the story, I think, well, I don't, I don't care where you sit politically when you first read this story you think about the children right? you think whoa wait a minute and we're already jumping to putting the doctors in jail I mean I think this is a very personal family decision I just don't think this is a time to start creating legislation about it in Georgia all right we are out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, Mo Ivory, thank you so much thank for you. being here. It was great to have you uh, back. Martha Zoller, you know we love having you here. Thank you. Listeners can hear you on WDUN thank in you. Uh, Gainesville. Um, Andrew Gillespie, thank you, too, for being here. Give us the name of the, uh, the uh, book, the Obama book again. Race in the Obama Administration. Yep. Good book. Kevin Riley. 
I have a signed copy of that book. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the advantages of being on this show. Many. Yeah. Uh, Wednesday of this coming week, uh, David Ralston will be here to do Political Rewind, so it'll be interesting to talk to him about this issue, although I'll bet he won't want to talk much about it, and I wouldn't blame him. Uh, And then, by the way, uh, we're going to have Nakeem Williams come in, the chair of the the Democratic State Party, coming in pretty soon as well. Uh, That's it for us today. Remember, if you don't get to hear us on the day we're on the air, you can always get our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, And join us on Monday, brand new talk studio. It's pretty cool. See you then. Thank you.